we come once more to a study of the 11th chapter of Paul's Epistle to the Romans. And uh, we are just at the very beginning of the chapter. We spent last Friday evening in some general introductory remarks, so that now we come to the more detailed exposition. Let me read to you, therefore, some of these verses, say the first, first four verses this evening. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Wot ye not what the scripture saith of Elias? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men, who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Now, we gave a kind of general analysis of the chapter last week, and I reminded you that it can be divided into three sections. The first section runs from the first verse to the tenth verse. Then the second section goes from verse 11 to verse 32. And then there's the final section, the final doxology, verses 33 to 36. And I suggested that the division is along these lines. That in the first section, verses 1 to 10, the apostle is demonstrating that the rejection of Israel is not total. That in the second section, from verse 11 to verse 32, he is suggesting that it's not final. And then you have this ultimate expression of adoration and of amazement and astonishment at the wonderful ways of God. Well, now then, we come now to the detailed working out of that division. So we start with this first section which runs, as I say, from verse 1 to verse 10. And what the apostle is here setting out to prove is that the rejection of Israel is not total. Now, he puts that in the form of this question. This is, as we've discovered, of course, many times, one of his favorite methods of teaching. And it is a very good way of doing it. You put up a rhetorical question. You put up a case. And it's a dramatic way of introducing a subject. And it focuses attention upon it immediately. And particularly when it's done in the way that the apostle does here. He puts his question in such a form as to expect a negative reply. It's translated here in the authorized version, I say then, hath God cast away his people? Which we could take like this if you like. Uh, I'm asking, is it possible that God hath cast away his people? And by putting it like that, you immediately expect the answer, no. But now, what is the question exactly? Well, the question is, of course, uh, determined by the meaning of this casting away. And uh, what it really means is uh, a final casting away, a total casting away. Deciding to have nothing further to do with them at all. Dismissing them, blotting them out. And uh, henceforward, 
not even regarding them at all. Now, that's the term that the Apostle uses, and he puts it in a prominent position in his sentence in order that it may be very emphatic. He's saying, in effect, is it therefore my teaching that God uh, has finished with his people? Is it uh, the teaching in the light of what I've been saying? And he's referring to chapters 9 and 10 in the light of all this. Do, am I therefore saying that God has nothing further to do and will never have anything further to do with the children of Israel at all? Is it my teaching that they, since this new teaching of the gospel, have been entirely excluded. Now, that's the position with which he's dealing, and which, as I showed last Friday night, I trust, follows on directly from the point he'd reached at the end of chapter 9, and the point he reaches again at the end of the digression, or the parenthesis in chapter 10. Very well, uh, then the next uh, item, of course, we have to examine is the word, is the phrase, this, his people. Hath God cast away his people? Who is he referring to? Well, the, everybody's agreed about this. He's referring to the nation of Israel. The nation as a people, as a theocratic people, including uh, its various members. His people here means the children of Israel, those about whom we read in the Old Testament, those who had been formed out of Abraham, who is the father of the nation. God had made a nation for himself out of Abraham. And this, his people, therefore, is obviously and clearly a reference to the nation of Israel considered in a physical sense. It is the nation of Israel as a people, as a whole. So that's the question, that's the proposition. Is the apostle's teaching in chapters 9 and 10, therefore, leading to this conclusion? that uh, the Jews uh, as a nation no longer are considered by God at all, and that when God brought in the gospel of his Son, it meant the end of all his dealings with Israel as a nation, the totality of the people. Now that's the question that he's putting up, and as I say, he so uh, phrases it that there is only one answer. And the answer as given here in the authorized version is, God forbid. Now, we've come across this uh, phrase before. He uses it at uh, certain points. We've already found it. It really means, may it not be. It's a very strong expression, as it is in all the other examples and illustrations that we've had of it. So that God forbid is a very good way of translating it, though it isn't uh, strictly accurate. Let it, may it not be, that is uh, what it actually means in a literal sense. In other words, the apostle says, this is unthinkable. It's not to be mentioned even. It's not to be considered even as a possibility. He couldn't have used a stronger expression to, get, to convey this idea that, that that kind of conclusion to his argument in chapters 9 and 10 is even a possibility. It's not, he says. Out upon the suggestion. Completely unthinkable, impossible, God forbid. Very well. Now then, why does he say that this is something which is quite impossible? Something utterly impossible. Why does he say so? Well, uh, I want to suggest to you that he gives his reasons for this. 
and that uh, in this section 1 to 10 we have the reasons, which I propose you subdivide now into three main headings. The first answer, the first explanation, if you like, of why he says unthinkable, quite impossible, the first answer is found in the first verse and in the first half of the second, and that is his own case. Why does he say, God forbid? Well, here it is. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abram of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. That's the first answer. That's the first explanation. Then you come to the second. And the second begins halfway through the second verse and goes on to the end of the sixth verse. What ye not... What the scripture saith of Elias, don't you know what the scripture says in Elias? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel. The whole case, in other words, that is suggested by this incident of Elias and which introduces us to the doctrine of the remnant. So the second answer we can put in that form. The doctrine of the remnant makes it impossible that God should ever have cast away, finally, his people. And then, from uh, the 7th to the 10th verse, the apostle sums it up. He says, what then? In the light of this, what do we got to say? And he says, Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. And then, uh, so typical and characteristic of him, to prove that he's absolutely right and to make it beyond any dispute, he adduces his scripture. He clinches it with scriptural quotations and winds up that particular argument. Now there is, it seems to me, the analysis of this first section. And once more, let me comment upon the method of the great apostle. He, he has his method. We've seen him doing this so often. Puts up a case answers it, and then to prove beyond any doubt, as I say, that it's not merely his opinion, or that it's not even anything new. He brings in his appropriate scripture, and always the right one, just the very thing that was needed at that point, and so he establishes his case, and he establishes, as I say, that there's no novelty about all this, that it's just what God has always done, and what he said he would. And so the case is answered in a final and conclusive manner. And nobody has anything to say. Now then, let's look then at these uh, three subsections of this first section. Why does he say, God forbid that anybody should come to the conclusion that I'm teaching that God has finished with the nation of Israel? Why do I say that? Well, he says, here's my first answer. I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, and of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Now, here is a most interesting statement. There are two matters of particular interest here, which, to which I must call your attention. He says, I also am an Israelite. And then uh, to underline that, he says, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. What's he saying here? What's he telling us? Well, he says, if anybody uh, thinks that I'm teaching that uh, 
But when God sent his son into this world with the gospel as a way of salvation, that it meant that uh, no Jew was ever to be brought in, that God had finished with Israel, and that he's only interested in Gentiles henceforward, I alone am sufficient to answer that. I myself am an Israelite. And uh, he is not content with stating it in general. He says, I am of the seed of Abraham. Now, you remember how in the previous chapters, and particularly in chapter 9, he'd made a great deal of this matter of the uh, descent from Abraham. Uh, not, not as though the word of God hath taken an effect, he says in 9.6, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are of the seed of Abraham are they all children. This was the thing, the great boast of the Israelites, the Jews was, we are the children of Abraham, we are Abraham's seed. And you'll find it running as a refrain through the pages of the four Gospels. So he says, I am of the seed of Abraham. But, you notice, he goes further, and he says, I am not only descended from Abraham, I am also descended from, from Jacob. I am descended from Jacob. Jacob is the one to whom the name of Israel was given, you remember. In other words, he is out to prove that he comes in the right line. You remember the argument in chapter 9 that, uh, after all, Abraham had uh, two sons, Ishmael and uh, Isaac. And it's through Isaac that the line comes down. But then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Paul says, I'm not only descended from Abraham, I belong to this line that comes down through Jacob. I'm an Israelite. And then he particularizes it still more by saying that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, why does he, why does he make this point? Well, he's obviously anxious to say this. He says, I'm not a proselyte. You know, you could, have, you could become a Jewish proselyte. And a number of people have been doing that. You submitted to circumcision and did various other things, and you could become a Jew in that way, as a proselyte. Paul says, I'm not a proselyte. I'm a true Israelite. Seed of Abram, seed of Jacob, seed of Benjamin. Not only that, he, uh, by telling us that he is of the tribe of Benjamin, he uh, reminds us that uh, this is of importance because it was the tribe of Benjamin that stood by the side of Judah. When the ten tribes were carried away into captivity, it was Judah and Benjamin that remained. The ten tribes were carried away, they became the northern kingdom. But Benjamin remained with Judah. And uh, from the time especially of the captivity. It was Judah and Benjamin, Benjamin and Judah, that constituted the people amongst whom our Lord worked. They were the people who remained in the land of Palestine. So that this is obviously a very important statement. Now why is he concerned to make this statement? There are those who would have us believe that he is simply speaking as a nationalist. And that he is saying, oh, I can't have that. As a Jew, I object to any such statement. That suggestion is put forward. Others think that he is trying to placate the nationalistic pride of his fellow countrymen, the Jews. And again, uh, I say this is like the first, obviously a totally inadequate explanation. It's got nothing to do with the context. 
The Apostle Paul never does anything like that at all. Well, what is he doing? Well, what he's really doing is to prove the point that he's out to prove. And the point he's out to prove is this. If you say that God has completely finished with Israel, well, then that means that not a single Israelite could ever have believed the gospel, could ever have been saved by it. But he says, I am an Israelite, and I have been saved by it. So, obviously, that is the meaning that we attach to it at this point. And this alone, of course, is enough in and of itself. If you say that not a single Jew is saved by the gospel, well then, the Apostle Paul is not saved. But he's not only saved, he's a great apostle and preacher of this gospel. So his one case in and of itself is really proof positive that God has not rejected the children of Israel as a nation once and forever and has nothing further to do with them. Very well. There he has made this personal statement and it's a very cogent and powerful argument. But then he adds to that. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Uh, he's uh, given a proof of it, and then he, he uh, as usual, rivets it. This is just his typical method. He doesn't merely make a pronouncement, he argues first and gives you an unanswerable argument. But then, having done that, he does make his pronouncement. And this is the pronouncement. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Now, this is an interesting statement. And for those of you who are interested in exposition, exegesis, and uh, the expounding of the scriptures, this is a very interesting phrase. There's a, a good deal of disagreement about it. But it has other points of interest also as I'm going to show you. For one thing, it is a kind of a quotation of something that you read in Psalm 94 and in the 14th verse, where you read, For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. Obviously that is in the Apostle's mind as he utters this phrase, Psalm 94, 14. But now here's the question. How are we to read this statement? There are two ways of reading it. Listen to them. Here's the first. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. The second way of reading it is this. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Now, do you see the difference? According to the first reading, he is referring to the nation, the nation of Israel, as he was in the first verse. According to the second reading, he is not doing that. He is only referring to the elect in the nation. He is only referring, if I may borrow the language that he uses in chapter 9, he is only referring to the Israel that is within Israel. You remember that great statement, which we emphasize so much because it's crucial. They are not all Israel that are of Israel. Due to a fault on the original recording, the following few moments of the sermon are now inaudible. Here, however, is a reading from the transcript of the sermon. Now then, here are the two points of view. And as I say, it's not only a matter of interest, but it's important that we should, for the sake of clarity and understanding, 
and in order that the rest of our exposition may be in line with it, that we should be clear about this. You can take it, therefore, that he's only referring to the elect among the nation of Israel, or you can say he's referring to the whole nation. Let us take them in that order, and I put them in that order for this reason. The two great commentators on this epistle, Charles Hodge and Robert Haldane, they both take that view. They both say something like this. They say in the first verse the apostle is referring to the nation. But obviously this statement here is not referring to the nation as such. It's referring only to the elect among the nation. So they would read it like that. And now we rejoin Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. God does not cast away his people which he foreknew. He has cast away all the rest, but he has not cast away his people which he foreknew. That is the position taken up by Charles Hodge and uh, Holden. And uh, I think you'll find John Calvin also and certain many other fa famous uh, commentators. Now, let's confine ourselves to Hodge only because he's representative of this uh, particular exp exposition of this statement. Why does Charles Hodge say this? Why does he say that the word people doesn't carry the same connotation in verse 2 as it does in verse 1? Well, these, he's got three arguments which he puts forward. He says, uh, by referring only here to the elect, the people within the people, the apostle is saying something that is in line with what he's already said in chapter 9, verses 6 to 8. I've already quoted it. Not as though the word of God has taken an effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are of the seed of Abram are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Says Charles Hodge, he is just saying that all over again, and obviously it's in line with what he's saying there. So you must take it that he's referring here not to the nation as such, but to this elect company within the nation. And then he says in the second place, that uh, it's in line with the Apostle's argument, and in line particularly with what he says in verse 5, even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. That's his second argument, which we will have to deal with. And then his third argument is this. He says, the Apostle's use of the uh, illustration of what happened uh, in the time of Elias and what was said to Elias himself fits in also with this statement. The position then was that the nation as a whole, as it was, as it were, were was apostate, and uh, there was just this small company that still believed. So they say it fits in with the use of the argument about Elias. Well, once more, with considerable fear and trepidation and hesitation, I venture to dissent from this exposition of both Hodge and Holden and those who agree with them. Why do I reject it? Well, here are my reasons. It seems to me always to be a very doubtful thing to do, to give a different meaning to the same word when you've got it in close proximity like this. 
You've got it in verse 1, and there they're agreed that it's referring to the nation, the nation as a whole. But here, they say in verse 2, it has a different meaning. Unless there is some overwhelming reason for doing so, we are entitled to assume that a word used like this in the same context and as a part of the same argument has the same reference and the same connotation. But secondly, it seems to me that to adopt their exposition is really to say something that is obvious and to be guilty of what is called tautology. In other words, what they're making the apostles say is this. God has not cast away the people whom he saved. Well, how could he cast away people if he'd saved them? It's obvious. There's no need to say God hasn't cast away, cast away the people whom he saved. The very fact that he saved them means in and of itself that he hasn't cast them away. So you're not adding to the meaning. That is sheer repetition or tautology. And the apostle is not guilty of tautology. That is what they, that is what they make him say. God has not cast away his people whom he's elected, whom he foreknew. Well, of course he hasn't. Nobody would be mad enough to say that. You can't elect and cast away people at one and the same time. So it's uh, a statement of the obvious, and in addition, as I say, it is sheer tautology. But thirdly, it seems to me that this uh, exposition entirely forgets the real object of the whole of this chapter. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is this. I took some time last Friday night to emphasize this point. That in chapter 11, the apostle is not merely repeating what he had said in chapter 9 and has finally worked out in chapter 10. He's adding to it. He's going beyond it. He's saying something new and something fresh. You see, what he had to do in chapters 9 and 10 was this. He had to reconcile the fact that the majority of the Jews were not believing the gospel with the teaching of the Old Testament. He also had to, had to justify the fact that the Gentiles were coming in. That was the object of chapters 9 and 10. And he has done that, of course, in his own admirable and perfect manner. But now in chapter 11, he is going further. He's now looking into the future. He's now going to tell us what's going to happen to this nation. Now, this is the extraordinary thing, that both Hodge and Holden agree that that is the great object of the chapter, and yet at this point they deny that, and say, it must mean this because it's in line with what he said in chapter 9, forgetting that the apostle has finished with that, and is now going on to a fresh subject, something which is entirely new. He's looking at the position of the nation as such in the light of God's ultimate plan and purpose. So that it seems that to me that that in and of itself is sufficient to put their exposition entirely out of court. And then when we come to this point about the uh, quotation as to what happened in the time of Elias, I'm constrained to take the exact opposite interpretation and understanding of the argument. Why does Paul quote this, which happened in the time of Elias? And surely the answer is this. 
The argument put forward is that because the majority of the Jews are not believing the gospel, that therefore God has finished with the nation. So Paul says, you know, poor Elias fell into exactly the same trap. Elias thought that he alone remained. But of course the answer of God to him was that there were many others who were all right also. Surely that is the force of the argument. And as the apostle will go on to say, not only am I a believer, there are many others also at this present time. Even so then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Far from it being the case that God has finished with the nation of Israel, there are quite a number who have believed, as there were a number who remained solid and true in the time of the apostasy in the days of Elijah. It's the exact opposite of Hodge's deduction, or Hodge's argument with respect to the employment of this case of Elijah. What the apostle is concerned to show is that there were more who were believers. He thereby proves, of course, that this argument that God had cast away his people entirely is quite ridiculous. Starts with himself, but he says, I'm not alone in this matter. As in the days of Elijah there were many others, so there are still. You can't say that God has finished with the nation. So it works, it seems to me, in the exact opposite manner uh, from the way which they argue. And so I come to my last argument, or reason for rejecting their exposition. The whole purpose of this chapter is to deal with the nation as such. And that is what makes it so astonishing to me, that they kind of misinterpreted this particular statement. Now, both Hodge and Holden and the others, they agree from here on that the apostle is interested in the nation as such. You read through the chapter again for yourselves, and you will find that all along he's got his eye on the nation. This phenomenon of the nation of the Jews, and then what's going to happen to them in the future. Look at the terms which he uses, which seem to me to prove this beyond any misunderstanding whatsoever. He says, uh, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Who are they? Well, that's the nation. He's not talking about the elect. The they refers to this people of God. Have they stumbled that they should fall? This is not the elect believers. This is the nation. God forbid, he says, but rather through their fall, salvation is come to the Gentiles. Then this great argument, now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, this isn't the elect remnant, this is the nation. And so on, it goes on right through. He says, blindness in part is happened to Israel. You see, he's still talking about uh, the nation. Verse 25, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Now, the whole chapter is dealing with Israel, and Hodge and Holden are very eloquent at that point, that this blindness in part has happened to Israel is a reference to the nation. They are the keenest in saying that. The result is, you see, they contradict themselves because of their misinterpretation at this particular point. And then you've got these other phrases, how that they can be grafted in again. Who are these? Well, this is the nation that's now out. 
It's not the elect he's talking about. He's not dealing with them at all. And then you see there is this other great statement in verse 28. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sex. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Who are these? Well, this is the nation of Israel. Not merely the saved remnant in the nation. Not merely the Israel within Israel. This is Israel considered as a physical nation. As a theocratic people of God. They are the people who are beloved for the Father's sake. Very well. I am arguing that right through the chapter, in this phrase as everywhere else, the apostle is talking about them. The theocratic nation of Israel. The people as a totality. The people as a whole. Very well. Now, you may say, is that important? Well, I suggest it is important. That everything in scripture is important. And that we should always be concerned about having a consistent explanation. So, I, my argument is that if you take that other view, well, you're contradicting yourself. You're interjecting just in this one phrase something that is not different from the rest of the use of the whole of the chapter. And indeed, has nothing to do with the argument of the chapter as a whole. Very well. There was the first point. God hath not cast away his people. Why not? The answer is because he foreknew them. That's how you read it. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Now, we needn't stay with this word. We've already come across it so often in this great epistle. What does it mean? What does he mean by his people whom he foreknew? Well, the better translation here is foreordained. Foreordained. Now, I remember when we were last dealing with this particular word, I pointed out to you how it's exactly the same word as you find used in 1 Peter 1.20, where the Apostle Peter is referring to our Lord, and he says that we've been saved with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the, before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you. It's exactly the same word, and it's rightly translated there, foreordained. And here it should also be translated as foreordained. It means this. Not merely that God in his omniscience knew them and knew what they were going to do and what they were going to think. It, that isn't the point of the apostle. It wouldn't demonstrate his argument this word foreknew, as we saw back in chapter 8, especially in that great statement, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, etc. That's the word. Foreknow means this, to foreordain. It doesn't just mean that God, knowing everything, knows who's going to believe and who's going to reject the gospel. Anybody who's worked his way through the epistle to the Romans couldn't believe that for a second. The whole argument in chapter 9 was that while these two children were still in the womb of their mother, Jacob and Esau, God said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. They hadn't done anything at all. That's foreordination. 
And that is the word that we've got here. It means, you see, that God has taken a special interest in them. That God has set his heart and affection upon them. Indeed, it goes further. God has made and prepared this nation for himself. Here's the verse. Amos, the prophet Amos, chapter 3 and verse 2. God addresses these people and says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now that can only have one meaning. It doesn't mean that he knew about them, because God knows about all the nations of the earth. It means, you only have I known with this special affection and interest. You only are a people who are a peculiar possession to me. I'm in this intimate relationship to you. I've known you as I've known nobody else. I recognize you. You are my people. That's what it means. And that is what God, of course, tells us everywhere in the Bible about his people. It is the teaching of the whole Bible about the children of Israel. They had not just come into being like the other nations. They were not a nation like other nations. God had prepared a special people for himself, for his own peculiar possession. He knows them. I will be your God and you shall be my people. He pledges himself to them. All that is included in this idea of foreknowledge, meaning foreordination. So, you see, the apostle's statement is this. Why do I say God forbid? I say God forbid for this reason. That God has made this nation for himself. If therefore he casts them away in the way you're suggesting, well then it means that God is contradicting himself. It means that God is going back upon his own purpose and upon his own plan. The thing is unthinkable. God has foreordained this people. As his people. So if you say that I'm teaching that God has now brushed them aside and have nothing more to do with them, it means that God made a mistake when he said this, or that God is incapable of carrying it out, or that God has changed his mind, but he's the father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There can be no change in the purpose of God. The purposes of God are always sure. He sees the end from the beginning. God is immutable. He is unchangeable. He is the everlasting God. Very well. So you see now then, the apostle, it seems to me, has uh, given us uh, here, uh, in and of itself, a sufficient explanation of why he speaks so strongly and says, God forbid, the thing is impossible. It mustn't be suggested. Because ultimately, that is what it implies. Very well. There is the first argument as it is put before us by the Apostle. Now, before we can move on to consider the second, which is his argument based upon the doctrine of the remnant, I must pause for a moment and make a comment, or give you a note, if you like, on what we've just been saying. Now, I've got uh, many reasons for doing this. Here is my first. I want to show you again the importance of every word in the Scripture. That's the marvelous thing about the Scriptures. Every word counts. So watch every word. Be careful about every word. And secondly, I am very anxious to bring out 
the practical importance of studying a portion of scripture like this. There are certain people who say, I'm not interested in the 11th of Romans. I'm interested in personal salvation. I want a personal blessing. I want something that's going to give me a thrill. I'm not interested in exposition of scriptures. I don't care about Charles Hodger, Holden, or all the rest of them, nor you with them, nor all the expositors. I want some personal blessing. And why should you be holding us with all this? Well, I want to try to show you that not only is it uh, important and right that we should study the scriptures and try to understand their meaning in full, but I want to show you that it's, it's a very practical thing to do at the same time. Now let me show you what I mean. I'm now concerned about this word Israelite. What have I got to say? Well, this. There are two main mistakes that are made with regard to the Jews. One is to make too much of them. And that is the fault of the people whom we describe as dispensationalists, to whom the Jews are almost an obsession. Everything centers around the Jews, and they even talk about there being a special gospel for the Jews in the future, and that the Jews are going to have an entirely different place in the kingdom of God, and so on. They make too much of the Jews. They see the Jew everywhere. But you see, there's another danger, there's another tendency. And as usual, it's the exact opposite of that. And that is not only to make too little of the Jew, but to get rid of him altogether. What am I referring to? I'm referring to the teaching that goes under the name of British Israelism. Now then, this passage that these words we've been considering tonight are of the extremest importance in this whole matter of the teaching of the so-called British Israelites. What do they teach? Well, they teach this. They say the mistake people have always made, of course, is that they've paid attention to the Jews, and so they're in trouble over the prophecies of the Old Testament. They, they say they're in trouble. They see the great promises, and then the Jews, of course, we know that they're outside, and so on and so forth, but they say that's been the mistake. They haven't realized that there's all the difference in the world between the Jew and the Israelite. They said they've taken Jew and Israelite to mean the same thing. But of course they say the key to the understanding of the whole of Scripture is to see that there's, there's this entire difference between the Jews and the Israelite. Now they say the promises are entirely to Israel, not to the Jews. The promises are to Israel. Who are Israel? Well, Israel, they say, are the ten lost tribes, referred to often in the Scriptures as Ephraim. Well, who are they now? They, they say, are the people of British stock. The British people are Ephraim. The Americans are Manasseh. And they say these glorious promises in the scriptures are really all for the British people in the British Empire. Now this is the teaching. You must have come across it. You say you're not interested in chapter 11 of Romans, but what you say to a person who comes and gives you the British Israel teaching and says, look here, you've misunderstood the whole of your scriptures. You haven't realized that Israel is Britain. Why? Well, the promises are to those who will occupy the isles. British isles, of course. They'll say that Israel will occupy the gates of the nation. Doesn't the British Empire hold Gibraltar? And at one time the key to Suez and Malta, the gates of the nations? Here it is, British Israel. We are the people. And they say, you see, it's something very wonderful here. That all these promises must never be thought of with respect to the Jews. They are finished. 
The Jew is outside. God's never promised anything to them. He's only promised them to Israel. Now there is the essence of the teaching. You can buy booklets which deal with it and refute it. But all I'm concerned to show you tonight is this. That this one statement which we've got here is enough in and of itself without going any further to give the lie direct to all that monstrous teaching. I believe my predecessor in this pulpit, Dr. Campbell Morgan, once said from this pulpit that of all the fatuous teachings he'd ever heard of, there was none more fatuous than that of British Israelism. But it's quite popular today. You see, it panders to national pride and to individual pride, and there's something very pleasing to the flesh in all this. Well, now I say this one statement is alone enough to answer it once and forever. The Apostle Paul, who is a Jew, he belongs to the tribe of Benjamin, that had stood with Judah when the ten tribes had been carried away. Judah, the Jews, as referred to in the Scriptures, constitute Judah and Benjamin. Here's a man who belongs to the tribe of Benjamin, but who nevertheless says, I am an Israelite. Showing that this ridiculous, suggested distinction between Jew and Israelite is entirely without any meaning or substance whatsoever. You read the case for British Israelism and you'll find that it not only doesn't correspond to biblical teaching, it doesn't correspond to history and all they try to drag in by way of anthropology. It has no facts. It is theory, suppositions, manipulation of scripture and so on. But here I say we've got enough in and of itself. But then there's another thing. They say not only that Israel, British people, are already receiving these blessings, but that they are the greatest blessing in the world. And so, you see, they say that most of the great missionary activities started from Britain. This Israel of God, you see, it sent missionaries all over the world. And this is a proof. She's a blessing herself and made a blessing to others, and she's receiving all these blessings from God. But what Paul teaches us here about Israel is that she is rejected for the time being. And she will only be blessed after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. The exact opposite of British Israel teaching. So, without saying anything further, this one chapter, the 11th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, and especially the use of this word Israelite. What if he'd said, I'm a Jew? But he doesn't. He says, I'm an Israelite. And he was an Israelite. And anybody who is a descendant from Jacob is an Israelite. Whichever tribe he may chance to belong to. I'm not concerned to expose the further vagaries of that extraordinary teaching. Which as you know came in towards the end of the last century and has been popular among certain people in the present century the Irish being the tribe of Dan, and so on. I, I don't worry with that. All I'm concerned to show you is that this and this alone is really enough in and of itself. Here is a characteristic, typical Jew, glorying in the fact that he's an Israelite. And that is, of course, the truth with respect to this matter. Very well. We've got to leave it at that for this evening. We have only touched this First part of the Apostle's argument in this first great section. But I do trust 
that I've persuaded any who may have felt doubtful about this, that this is not only glorious scripture and an introduction to a great theme, it is also of great practical importance and usefulness and relevance. And the more we know the scripture, the more we shall find that it deals with our modern and contemporary problems. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we come again unto thee to offer up our thanksgiving and our praise. We thank thee more than ever for thy blessed word. We know something of the subtleties of sin, the subtleties of our own minds, the carnal nature, the pride of men and the pride of flesh. O Lord, we thank thee therefore more than ever for thy word and for the light and the illumination of thy spirit upon it. Keep us, we pray thee, ever humble. Keep us, O Lord, from simply being concerned to demonstrate our own positions. Keep us, O God, from a slavish following, even of great names and commentators and teachers. Keep us, we pray thee, to that simplicity that is in Christ. Give us, O Lord, an ever-deepening and greater thirst for a true understanding. And enable us, more and more we pray thee, rightly to divide the word of truth. Hear us, O Lord. Receive our worship and our praise and our adoration. And follow us with thy blessing. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this our short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage and evermore. Amen.